walked out of that room and I walked out of my career, my international career. It's widely believed that this is the phone that has changed phones forever. Turning to our top story this morning, and that is confirmation of the first case of COVID-19 in the Republic. Let's get Brexit done. It's the answer that, that led those who've been told for so long by so many to be cynical and fearful and doubtful about what we can achieve to put their hands on the arc of history and bend it once more toward the hope of a better day. It's been a long time coming, but tonight, because of what we did on this day, in this election, at this defining moment, change has come to America. Yes, we can. The slogan that swept America's first black president, Barack Obama, to victory in 2008. But did his legacy live up to his promise? I'm joined now by Larry Donnelly, law lecturer at NUI Galway and political columnist with the journal .ie. Larry, I don't know if we can overstate the significance of a black man being elected to the White House, something we never thought we would see. But did he fulfill the promise and, and, and the burden of expectation, do you believe, that, that was put upon him? Well, in my view, Barack Obama was a transformative figure, but was he a transformative politician? Uh, I think the answer is probably no. Uh, I think the first thing you need to say about Obama, however, is that the expectations were sky high. When you have somebody who's able to deliver speeches and rhetoric like that, uh, it's naturally going to get people's opinion, people's expectations way up in the stratosphere. Uh, the reality is Obama appealed to people's hope. Uh, hope and fear are the two strongest emotions mm. in politics. Uh, we've seen Obama do a terrific job in that, and Trump has gone for the latter emotion. Um, the expectations were very, very high. Did he live up to them? Uh, probably not. But at the same time, uh, look, he is a transformative figure by virtue of the fact that he was an African-American man uh, elected to the presidency. A lot of people didn't think that would happen. Uh, and politically speaking, uh, you know, you'd have to look hard to find accomplishments. But he did have one huge accomplishment, which presidents for 100 years or more had tried, uh, and that is to reform health care. So I think it is a, it's a mixed legacy, but still a transformative figure. So. And obviously Obamacare is what you're referring to and I think anyone would give him that. But on the, I don't want to err too much on the negative side, but, but things like racism, things like gun control, things that people did hope to see change around with his presidency, they didn't really materialise. No, and I, I think that's because of all of the institutional and other impediments that are a fact of life in American politics. Uh, I think Obama took things a, a, a decent direction, but he didn't get as far as he could have. Uh, I think his other failing really was that he didn't do politics. I think Obama distinctly disdained uh, the idea of rolling up his sleeves and getting down and dirty uh, with members of Congress in order to uh, uh, further his agenda. He just didn't do a good enough job uh, at that stuff. And I think it's because deep down, uh, Barack Obama may have been a politician, but I don't think he liked politics at all. And I think that after he got health care done, which again is a significant uh, accomplishment, uh, I think he really spent all of his capital there. I think he had enough uh, after he got the health care plan done uh, and really just couldn't stand uh, doing what he needed to do, would have needed to do to get further things done, especially uh, I think on the gun issue. Racism is very intractable. But in terms of the gun issue, uh, I think he arguably could have gotten more done, mm. uh, but just didn't invest enough of himself uh, in that process. I think what he did a lot was talk over Congress. He talked directly to the American people. And from a purely selfish political point of view, that worked very well. Uh, he was reelected by a landslide. But in terms of getting things done, not so much. OK, look, thank you for that. Indeed, that is Larry Donnelly there, law lecturer at NUI Goway and political columnist with the journal. Five three one six at a cost of 30 cent. Do you think Barack Obama was transformative? Uh, Larry says a transformative figure, but not a transformative politician. A lot of the time, I think we actually give him credit for things he didn't really do. Uh, he said a lot of lovely, pretty words, but did he actually do anything? Uh, but also... Um, there will be more coverage of Obama's presidency throughout the day on News Talk as we continue to explore the 20 most influential moments from the past two decades. (laughs) 
Well, now, time to return to our series exploring News Talk's 20 most influential moments of the past two decades. Every day across the station, we look back at an influential moment chosen by our listeners. And today we want to reflect on the presidency of Barack Obama. November the 4th, 2002 was a historic moment in the US and across the globe when America welcomed its first black president. And one man who was there to witness it all was Charlie Bird, who was RT's US correspondent at the time. Charlie, good morning. Good morning, Pat. It was actually 2009, not 2002. Oh, my, my mistake. I just read what was in front of me. Um, yeah, I, was I, I wasn't thinking. My brain was not engaged. Of course, I can do the sums. Now, Charlie, um, you were there for the voting and for uh, that wonderful moment of the victory speech in Grant Park in Chicago. Yes, I was, Pat. I mean, I have to say... Um, you know, people ask me about the highlights of my career, of my life, and I keep saying that to have been in the United States, to have been in Washington, at least for the 18 months, I know it was short-circuited, we won't go into that, but to be there for the first 18 months of Barack Obama's presidency was just absolutely amazing. But the two things that stand out for me, first was to have been in Grant Park in Chicago on the night when he made his acceptance speech. And it was just one of the most spine tingling moments I've ever uh, been at in my life. And I was telling a researcher the other day, by the way, Pat, I'm actually wearing an Obama hat, which I bought at the time <laughs> myself. I, I put it on <laughs> just for the interview. But I remember on, on the morning of the voting, we got up very early in Chicago and we went out to a polling station and we met this black woman. I would say she was probably in her 80s uh, who had never voted before and was standing in line in the perishing cold to go and vote for Barack Obama. And it was just absolutely amazing. And then, you know, that evening, uh, um, John McCain, who graciously, unlike Donald Trump, conceded defeat and rang Barack Obama. And then Barack Obama made this famous um, acceptance speech in Grant Park, which was absolutely uh, remarkable to be standing there in the back of the crowd, watching Obama, Michelle and the children come out and make, deliver this amazing speech. It was incredible. Mm. Now, you mentioned your Obama hat, uh, but there was Obama hysteria. I mean, the, the merchandisers went crazy. They did, yeah. I, can I just make one other thing? During his acceptance speech, he actually referred to a lady called Anne Nixon Cooper. And it was, again, it's one of those seminal moments in history. He spoke about Anne Nixon Cooper, who was 106 years of age. She was 106 uh, and she cast her vote that morning in uh, Atlanta. And Obama said in his Grand Park speech that she was born just a generation past slavery, a time when there were no cars on the road, there were no planes in the sky, and that she would not have been able to vote because she was a woman and a woman of color. Just imagine yeah. that those, those sentences coming up. But you're right. The things that were so when the inauguration came um, the following uh, on December or January 2009, um, it was just first of all, I, you'll never forget the day, Pat. There were 1.8 million people uh, crowded onto the Mall and the surrounding streets. It's the biggest crowd that Washington has ever seen in its history. Yeah. 1.8 million people. Just think about it. Not only the population yep. of the whole of Dublin and County Dublin, but all the counties, all in the one area. And it was freezing cold. And you're right. At six o'clock in the morning, you could buy anything. You could even buy Obama condoms. Uh, they were quite <laughs> remarkable. <laughs> Crazy stuff. Way, no. Just give out the souvenirs. Now, tell me this. Uh, did you meet the man himself? Yes, I did. Um, I had the amazing encounter with him on that Patrick's Day, uh, on not the first year, in the second year, um, when Brian Cowan was the Taoiseach. And by the way, Micheál Martin was the Minister for Foreign Affairs. So we were all, as usual, you know the format when they go to give the bowl of shamrock, and then we were all squeezed into, into the Oval Office. All the Irish media were squeezed into the Oval Office. And I was looking at everybody. I said, Charlie, this is your one chance if you can try and shake the hand of Barack Obama. And we were warned 
by the media handlers. You mustn't do anything. You mustn't say you can fire questions. And just as the, um, the briefing w- was breaking up, I actually put my hand out and I, I said, um, Mr. Obama, can I ask you a question? And he shook my hand. And then I said to him this remarkable thing. I said, Mr. Obama, this was at the time when he was trying to get his health care through the Obama healthcare, which you know now is one of the big issues which uh, Trump is fighting over. And I said to him, you know, if you were to get your uh, Obama healthcare through the Senate and Congress, uh, would you then visit Ireland? And he looked at me and he put his arm around me and he said, (laughs) why are you going to vote for me? And the whole place cracked up. But it was, yeah, it was, you know, we all have heroes. You all have people that you like to meet. But the other thing is, just go back. When we're talking about Trump, remember 1.8 million. And when Trump was inaugurated four four years later, you know, he said there were more people on the mall than 1.8. And in fact, it turned out there were anywhere, anywhere between three and 600,000 people. But that didn't stop. I think, did you interview Sean Spicer, by the way? Uh, no, I didn't interview Sean, but I mean, I remember Sean standing up there and trying to make um, the claim on behalf of his Lord and Master, and it just was laughable. Yeah, I mean, anyway, the images, but it is, you know, when you when you think about it, that 1.8 million, in fact, nobody, when Clinton was elected, 800,000 people turned out in the mall. When Bush was uh, inaugurated, there were 300,000. Even the second time, I actually was so caught up in the Obama thing, that when I retired from RTE and when the second uh, inauguration came around on my own steam, I wanted to be there. So I was uh, I was on the mouth for both of Barack Obama's inauguration. And the second time around, there were still even one million people uh, on the mouth. So it's... Um, it's just, it's it's a remarkable thing. And for me, Pat, if I can say one other thing, most people say the fact that Barack Obama, that a black man was elected the president of the United States. But I've always said what's even more remarkable was that they elected him a second time. They elected a black man a second time. In other words, it just wasn't a flash in the pan the first time round. They actually elected him a second time. Yeah. And then look what happened. The reaction on the other side of from people got Trump into the White House. So uh, there you go. And it looks like he's determined to stay there in spite of all the evidence to the contrary. Charlie, look, thank you very much for your uh, recollections of that historic time, uh, historic moment, whether or not the presidency could ever live up to the hype that preceded it is another question. But uh, no doubt uh, a seminal moment in uh, contemporary US history was the election twice of Barack Obama to the White House. Charlie Bird, thank you very much for uh, joining us. It's been a long time coming, but tonight, because of what we did on this day, in this election, at this defining moment, change has come to America. And that was Barack Obama, of course, speaking on election night 2008 in Chicago. We are continuing with News Talk's reflection of the 20 most influential moments of the last 20 years. And today we're going to be looking at that 2008 US presidential election, which saw the first African-American elected president, Barack Obama. And Angela O'Shaughnessy joins me on the line now from Donegal. Hello, Angela. Hi, good morning. So you're a freelance writer, but you were in the States at the time of Obama's campaign and election. What do you remember about it? Yeah, I mean, as someone who shares both Black and Irish ancestry, just like Obama, I was incredibly excited, Um, really excited to see the support in both the United States and in Ireland. Um, We were having really fascinating conversations um, about race, I think, for the first time in a long time. So it was it was important. The energy at the time was completely unreal. Um, you know, my best friend who is white, she got hope tattooed on her neck. And uh, all my friends of different colors and backgrounds were making and buying bags with his face plastered on them. We were obsessed with him. It was it was crazy. Yeah, I remember I visited the States and I just remember that image and hope just blasted absolutely everywhere. And do you think people 
knew what he stood for? Did they know what his policies were or was the excitement around hope and change and the fact that he was going to be the first black president? I think it was the latter. And I, you know, I throw myself into that category as well. Um, Just his significance purely was incredibly important. I mean, you had prominent black leaders like Jesse Jackson, who didn't even really like him, but cried when he was elected because it was so important to see that representation. I cried and it kind of never really dawns on you that you're you're missing um, something, you know, how important it is to see somebody who looks like you in a position of power until they get there. And so I think African-Americans, especially little black boys and girls for the first time, are really feeling like now this is possible. I can become president, too. Um, and what about you then as a, a mixed race person? Was this something that excited you or did you feel that we shouldn't be discussing colour in this way? No, the conversation was finally happening and it was, convers- you know, it was an opportunity to open up conversations that I could finally have with my friends and family members for the first time. Um, I was kind of disturbed by a lot of the rhetoric, especially from the right who ultimately hated him because he was black and, and weren't really that shy about that. Um, and I think a lot of the conversation also lacked nuance and there was a complete erasure of his Irish ancestry which was kind of, um, you know, frustrating as a mixed race person. But we were having the conversation. And I think that was the point that, that we were discussing this incredibly complex, difficult topic, but we were doing it. And do you think enough change came about during his time in office? No, I don't. And I voted for him twice. Um in hindsight, I, I really take issue with a lot of his policies. Ultimately, he was a moderate Democrat, and my politics would be more aligned with Bernie Sanders. But um, there, there is this saying in the African-American community um, by the, the great Black writer Zora, Zora Neale Hurston, all my skin folk ain't kinfolk, which basically means that just because someone is Black or looks like you doesn't always mean that they will share the same belief systems, morals, etc., and like advanced causes that fight for your community. And that's ultimately how I think a lot of African-Americans ended up feeling after his term. But I think that he was stuck. You know, he was trying to toe the line as a black president who half the country hated and wanted to see fail. And his hands were tied. Um, if you look at the amount of things that Trump gets away with compared to Obama, it's, it's very stark contrast. But I think we needed him at the time. We really, really needed him at the time. And there was such a stark contrast. I mean, even if we look at the whole Black Lives Matter movement and all the controversy that kicked that off, I think a lot of people were like, oh, God, I thought we had all that sorted. And what a naive thing to think that just one black president is going to fix everything. Right, right. I mean, if you look at the Obama and Trump presidencies, I think that confluence of two different candidates and support bases that were diametrically opposed to one another politically and morally really helped usher in the new progressive left, Bernie Sanders base, AOC, Ilhan Omar, et cetera, who ultimately, like, hopefully will be the future of the Democratic Party. I will say that, um, as you said, Americans spoke of Obama ushering in this new post-racial society in America, that racism was over and black people can stop complaining now. But after the summer, with the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and countless others and the Black Lives Matter protests that we've seen across the world, it's really obvious that we have a lot of work to do. I mean, just in Ireland alone, it's, it's quite sad. Ireland has the second highest rate of racist violence in the EU. And, um, but there's clearly been this much broader shift in the social consciousness that recognizes that racism, especially anti-Black racism, is widespread even if people are just learning about it for the first time. So I think that once we address these issues, all of society can progress forward. And I think this is good. Yeah. And I think it makes people become more politically awake because you can get quite lazy when things are going going well um, and, and sit back a little bit more. So that feeling that's sort of coming from America now of new hope and change and that excitement, was that what you remember from Obama being elected? I do. I do. 
But are you are you asking about whether it's we feel the same way now after Biden has been elected? Do you, there there feels like there's a change coming, and the, to see people out celebrating in the streets the way they were, I'm wondering is there any comparison between the two? No, it's not the same. We're relieved. That's what it is. After four years of hell, I think that's really what it is. We are relieved. We're looking forward to getting back to some, some sense of normalcy. Um, and, you know, again, going back to Bernie Sanders and the new progressive left, this ultimately will be the future of the Democratic Party, whether it's in 10 or 20 years. And so we that momentum is what a lot of young people are excited for. But Biden was not the most progressive candidate. And a lot of folks, including myself, who voted for him are not happy, you know, that we would have preferred Bernie, but we're happy that he's got it and that Trump will be gone soon. Well, Angela, it's fascinating talking to you. Thank you very much for coming on. Angela O'Shaughnessy, a freelance writer in Donegal who was living in the States at the time of Obama's campaign and election. So you're listening to Lunchtime Live on News Talk and we're taking a look back at the 20 most influential moments of the last 20 years, today being Obama. And uh, Henry Healy also joins me on the line from Money Gall. Henry, how are you? Hi Claire, how are things? Henry, you're nearly up there, certainly here in Ireland, as much as Obama is, that you really came to prominence during that time because your family to Obama. How did that all come about from your point of view? Yeah, we, we discovered in, uh, in 2007, uh, just after Senator Obama had, uh, declared his intention to run for the Democratic nomination, um, a lady by the name of Megan Smolenyak, uh, she was, she's a genealogist in the United States, she began researching his roots discovered a connection to the Carney family, and uh, she reached out um, uh, with another guy by the name of Kyle Petit from Ancestry.com to uh, Canon Stephen Neal, who was the Church of Ireland rector in the area at the time, and uh, they didn't give him any information of why they were looking about these, this Carney family, and uh, when he got a phone call to prompt him, it was possibly in connection with Senator Obama. Uh, he began doing the, the fishing to see if it was if it matched the records in, in, in his parish registers, which they did they did. And it was announced at the time it was connection to the Kearney family. And um, my uncle had uh, completed our family tree a couple of years previous. And it was just, uh, I suppose, adding another branch onto that tree uh, with this discovery. And uh, it, 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 it was as simple as that, I suppose. But there was a lot of work in the background uh, by a lot of people uh, to make that connection and, and to bring it back not only to Moneygall, uh, but uh, to our family as well. And I mean, it just put Money Gall on the map in more ways than one. We now have the Obama Plaza. And I still remember now, Henry, watching Barack himself drinking pints of Guinness. I mean, yeah. you, you got right up close and personal with your cousin. Absolutely. Like we were very fortunate, uh, you know, in, in, in 2011. Like it's hard to believe it's going to be a decade come this May since President Obama came, came to Money Gall and, and enjoyed a pint of Guinness in, in, in Ollie's bar. And we have been very fortunate. Like people have visited because of the connection. Money Gall is known now because of the connection. And uh, of course, uh, as you mentioned, the Obama Plaza on uh, on the mouth of the motorway as you pass Money Gall, uh, it, you know, is is a reason to, as well to stop and and and, uh, and come in in towards the village with the visitor centre, uh, giving people an opportunity to relive the opportunity. But you know, we've been very fortunate over 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 the last few years. And while President Obama was in power, we were guests in the White House and. Not only did I have Guinness with him in Moneygall, he put me into the car with Ollie, the publican in Moneygall, and, and when we were in Washington, and we drove down, shut down DC, and went for a pint in DC as well. So we've we've had uh, a very uh, privileged uh, opportunity, uh, uh, to, to say the least, uh, because of President Obama and his and, and his uh, his election to to the highest office in the United States. So when you think back to him first being elected, what what are your memories of that? Because you didn't know what was to unfold. No, definitely we didn't. And, you know, obviously when he was elected, we knew of the connection. And there was big celebrations and uh, Erasmus and uh, uh, in Moneygall around around the election at that time. And, uh, you know, we I was one of the fortunate people uh, again in, in 2009 for, the, for, for President Obama's inauguration. I, I was invited over by the Irish American Democrats and the American Ireland Fund uh, to attend their events to celebrate. And we went over and to just to be there to witness such a historic occasion is, is something, you know, that, uh, that I will never forget. And, and uh, you know, we were very fortunate. There was radio documentaries with us and TV documentary with us at the time as well, capturing all this. So, 
uh, if I ever forget, I can always uh, flick over and and uh, and, uh, and rewatch and relive it as well. Amazing! Uh, it's great to have it documented like that. And I hear there's a, an amazing cardboard cutout of you and your cousin at Obama Plaza. Henry Healy, cousin of Barack Obama. Thank you very much for coming on. Time now to look again at some of the most significant developments of the last 20 years. And today it's the election and re-election of Barack Obama. To say someone had a front row seat is usually a bit of a cliche, but in uh, the case of Beck Dory Steen, it's true. She spent years as a White House stenographer recording every word that came out of the president's mouth. Her book, uh, From the Corner of the Oval Office, is now going to be made into a movie. And she joins us now on uh, News Talk. Beck, good afternoon to you. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Uh, So describe for us, what exactly does a White House stenographer do? Are you just like sitting in a corner or behind a desk or something out of the way and just recording everything? (laughs) Uh, Oftentimes that is the case. I like to call myself the professional stalker because I'm supposed to be in the room without anyone noticing that I'm there. So with President Obama, if he had an interview in the Oval Office or abroad, I was always there with my recorders in hand pressing record and trying to steer clear of drawing attention to myself to uh, little or no success. <laughs> and the, 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 those, uh, those interviews, uh, as you describe them, is this, me, is, is this like discussions with other world leaders or what kind of things would it be? So we were, so White House stenographers were used as sort of a first line of defense um, in respect to the press to make sure that if he had an interview with a press member that the press member couldn't leave the interview and say, President Obama said this, you won't believe it. Mm. We would have our own official White House transcript. So that's why I was there. Um, So no, I wasn't in those private clandestine discussions with other heads of state. It was more whenever there was a member of the press present, so was I. Right. Okay. And and then, so then after you'd record it, then you'd have to type it up. That's right. And what was sort of funny is that a lot of times, especially before a big announcement, President Obama would have a roundtable in the Roosevelt Room right across from the Oval Office, and he'd invite top journalists to come and sit with him, but it was always off the record. But because the White House wanted to make sure they had a record of it, I was the only one allowed to record it. So the journalists would always look at me with sort of envious eyes and be like, oh, she gets to say exactly what he said. We can't use any of this. Right. Okay. Well, yes, uh, they they can't use it. They just can't say where it came from. Uh, um, right. Uh, when I'm at. So, uh, and this, uh, you, you weren't the only one, though. And w- would it be a situation that where you're working in shifts all the time? Yes. So there were two other presidential stenographers, and we would rotate just because his schedule was impossible for one person because he would go from one meeting, and we'd have to type that up, and then the next person would step in to record the next meeting, and we'd type that up. Um, and so, yeah, I just remember at one off the record meeting with journalists, someone said, can we just write about that joke you just made? Because that was really funny. And he said, nope, it's off the record. <laughs> what was the joke? Oh, I don't remember. Oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> Sorry. Har- hardly worth reporting on then, really. So, but, but, uh, but then that sounds very, in- and certainly from, uh, from your book, it all sounds very intensive. And, and you kind of entered a bubble and emerged from it eight years or so later. Yes, very much so. It's a, it's all encompassing. I imagine it's sort of like a top surgeon who's just always on call, even though I have none of the skills of a surgeon or any top professional. Um, but basically, you have your BlackBerry on, you have the ringer on high, and then you have to make sure that the ringer is off when you enter a, a st- an intense meeting. But you're always at his beck and call. Right. And and would it have been the case then that um, everybody you socialize with were basically work people? Yeah, because it's, again, it's uh, it's as intense as it gets. So you really have no time. You're constantly having to cancel plans, whether it's anniversaries or birthdays. You want to be there, and all of a sudden you get a call and you can't. Um, and also our travel schedule was very aggressive. So because of that. Are you being attacked by a dog right now? <laughs> I'm not. Well, no, just my neighbor's dog is saying good morning. Right. OK. All right. Is, is that like your neighbor's dog is a Republican? No. Uh, no. OK. I, I, it's good to know. That must have been very exhausting then as a way to live your life and, and for everybody there. Yeah, I would. Uh, the president even said uh, campaigns and traveling with the president. It's a young man's game or a young woman's game. Just because um, my older colleagues who had families you know, I'm missing dates or whatever, but they're missing kids' birthdays. 
Mm. So it's, um, it's a real sacrifice, which is why I think if you're doing the job right and well, it really is why you're called a civil servant. Now, but you did, as I understand, you didn't originally want to do that or even move to D.C. particularly. <laughs> no, I was a high school English teacher. Um, I was kind of appalled by politics. Um, even the poli sci majors in college, I was like, oh, they're so slippery. You can't trust a word they say. Uh, and so I actually applied to a job on Craigslist when I was working five part-time jobs and one turned out to be in the White House. So I really fell into it. Um, and so even on Air Force One, you know, I was referred to as the Craigslister because everyone right. else, you aspire to have an assigned seat on Air Force One. And I was like, what are you doing here? Uh, does the White House normally re- recruit people from Craigslist? It sounds a bit dodgy. I- I know. I'm proudly. I'm proud to say I'm the only uh, White House Craigslister. It was um, <laughs> the stenographers for a few years. There were contracted. We've since been brought in house, so we're official White House employees. But when I was hired, it was a contracted position, and normally they hire internally. So you start as a stenographer at this office. You get promoted to State Department if you do well there. And then maybe you become an alternate at the White House. Mm. And I think because I had taught at Sidwell Friends, which is where the Obama girls attended, I already had the background clearance. So right. they said, well, how much of a fool can she really make of herself? And, and the, your, your impression of politicians and politics beforehand as you said there was that you know they're so slippery etc did, did, did you find that uh, um uh, completely discounted when you started working in the white house or did you, you know do you find it true in some individuals but not with others yeah i would say there's always an element there because to to reach the white house you have to be ambitious and you have to make some sacrifices but overall i really um had my mind changed by president obama his senior staff and even my friends who were middle or lower staff, um, they, it was just amazing the dedication that they committed every day. And it was just, that was their focus. They just wanted to make the country better for all Americans. They had like this whole docket of ambition. It was really impressive. And I was so worried when I entered that I wasn't going to like President Obama as much as I thought I did from him on television. And he was so much better in person. You know, Mm. he's just funnier. He's warmer. He can joke around more. And he's just like such a nerdy dad at the end of the day. <laughs> and you, you would, you would, I mean, obviously, you know, he was doing important stuff. He'd probably wave at you while you're in your little box or whatever when you're doing your stuff. But you'd see him every morning in the gym. When we were traveling, we were the two people that kind of uh, used the opportunity, you know, if the call time's at eight, that until eight o'clock, you have free time. So he and I both used that time to hit the gym, get endorphins up, feel a sense of control. And he would always, you know, we'd have a competitive back and forth on the gym. He would always say that, you know, I wasn't as fast as he thought I would be. Uh, there was a lot of trash talking going on. And even later on, at one point, I dyed my hair brown and he just went, oh, you changed your hair, which is like the meanest thing you can say. And so I was like, yes, I did. And then he like tried to backtrack and he was like, oh, it looks really good. <laughs> it was too late. <laughs> Call yourself a diplomat. Now, yeah. no, so, so you get this job. It's, 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 it's a fantastic job and it, it, it lasts all those years. And then I suppose you weren't perhaps anticipating that you might stay there because as I understand, you weren't a political appointee. Uh, you might stay there and work for Hillary Clinton Obviously, that didn't work out. Um, so, right. <laughs> uh, uh, so were you there when 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 Trump and his entourage entered the White House? I was, yeah. So I thought that a bunch of my friends who had left to work on the Hillary campaign would come back. I was interested in seeing what the first female president would be like, how it would be different. And instead, Trump won. And so I just remember even just typing up his inaugural his inauguration speech. I was like, whoa, this is. A real turn of events, like that we are not even trying to play nice here. Um, If you recall, it was quite combative. Mm, American Um, carnage, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so that was a pretty big freak out. I had already heard from my colleagues that the Trump administration wanted nothing to do with a transition team. No one would show up. Um, And so I was aware that it was going to be tricky, to say the least. But the first few days, it was eye-opening. the amount of swagger and arrogance when most of these people had never been in before, let alone kind of in the heart of government. Mm, that, actually, that isn't because so many of them didn't uh, had no political experience or certainly no government and certainly no governmental experience. How you know the civil service works and who do you talk to about getting this done or that done? So did did it appear to you as if they knew what they were doing? No, but I don't think they cared. I think they saw it as like we won. And so it was like a full stop. It was sort of like 
people who get married just to because the, they want to have a big wedding and they don't think about the marriage that comes after that and how all the work that goes into that. They were just like, we got we have we get to have this big wedding and everyone loves us and we're celebrating us and they didn't think about all of the work and the daily grind and all the sacrifices that you have to make if you're in that position if you're mm. in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. So uh, for you and for your colleagues, you know, working lower down the pecking order, did 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 the atmosphere change for people uh, uh, when, well, when the Trump team took over? Most of my friends had to leave. The only people who were left were other, um, you know non-political appointees. So mm. it was basically me and the technical team uh, and also White House military who function as um, but also as um, the medical unit. So I basically had my doctor friends, my nurse friends, the military aide who carries the nuclear football and the, you know, make sure Wi-Fi is running. So on the plane, we would all exchange looks like, what is happening here? Um, but everyone else was gone. Everyone else had to leave when Obama was kind of, that's what made it even more profound of a difference is that all of the offices my friends had worked in, they were all empty. And that was the, the Trump team hadn't even replaced them because they hadn't yeah. been to the transition mo- meeting. So they didn't know they needed to have a press secretary, you know, they needed to have a, um, the briefing book people who prepare the briefing book every day. They just didn't know anything. Uh, and uh, the, the, I did mention in the introduction that your book is going to be turned into a movie now. Wh- wh- when will that come out, do you think? Or have they started pre-production or anything of that sort? On no, they haven't started pre-production. I think now they're talking about turning it into a television series because those have been doing so well mm-hmm. um, so that you can stream it. So who knows? Just because COVID, uh, I think they just started up again with filming stuff. So I don't know what will happen with me. But I can only control the book side of things. Yeah, well, yeah, we look forward to seeing it and indeed reading your book. Beck, thank you so much for uh, speaking with us today. That was Beck Dory Steen, uh, former stenographer in the Obama White House and the author of From the Corner of the Oval Office. We've been looking back at uh, different influential moments as chosen by you, the News Talk listener. Today, we're looking back on the election of America's first black president, Barack Obama, in 2008. Let's remind ourselves, first of all, of that morning, that November in 08, when we woke up to the news of his election. The Breakfast Show with Claire Byrne and Jared Gilroy. Thanks to SEMA. While others see things differently, SEMA means business. On News Talk 106 to 108. And a very good morning to you. It's eight minutes past seven on Wednesday, the 5th of November. You're listening to a very special early edition of The Breakfast Show for the U.S. presidential election. I'm Jerry Gilroy. And I'm Claire Byrne. And we're all waking up to history this morning. Barack Obama will be the next president of the United States, the first African-American to hold the office. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Hundreds of thousands of people have come out onto the streets and cities all across America to celebrate. It beggars belief, and things will never be quite the same again. The streets have just erupted in a spontaneous party. People playing drums, tambourines, jumping up and down in the streets. We'll be live with the Obama campaign in Chicago, and we'll be live with the McCain campaign in Arizona. Yeah, New Stop Breakfast back in the day. Ger Gilroy and uh, Claire Bernco. Where are they gone now, I wonder? Anyway, joining me to talk about this, discussing her memories of that day and what Obama's victory meant, is the District Attorney for Suffolk County in Massachusetts, Rachel Rollins. Rachel, you're very welcome to the programme. And just to remind people, because it is important, you are the first woman of colour to hold a position of, of District Attorney in Massachusetts. So uh, Barack Obama's victory, obviously, a, a huge moment in in the history of the states and and for you in your life can you start maybe by bringing us back to that time in 2008 your own memories of that day oh of course i can i remember vividly um just feeling such a, a huge swelling sense of pride not only that there had been a massive ceiling uh broken right, with respect to actually having a person of color, a black person elected president of our United States of America, uh, but also just, uh, Kieran, the way that he won, the masterful use of our electoral college, um, the sort of broad tent approach, um, how hardworking he was, how smart he was and still is, 
and utilizing these mechanisms like the Electoral College that were put into place to keep certain people in power, um, overwhelmingly that did not look like Barack Obama, um, and him using those very things to secure victory. Um, there was also an amazing moment I vividly recall at his inauguration when Chief Justice Roberts um, flubbed you know, the, the oath and Obama uh, corrected him from memory, right, with respect to what was supposed to happen. So there was this, this is almost superhero-ish um, or esque with respect to the pride that many people felt looking at him as our president. And then as, as a person of color, what was the significance for you of it? Oh, I, I mean, absolutely, that there are even the highest levels of our government, of our country, um, that are now uh, no longer off limits. You know, there is at least a one example you can think of where somebody um, who could have been in your family or somebody you loved or uh, cared for, and that's not just for people of color. What's great is as we look at this world and it's becoming more multicultural, that there are just people that look different that are in leadership roles, which I think is always a wonderful thing. I also happened to be working at the Department of Justice at the time. I was a federal prosecutor at the U.S. Attorney's Office. So I went from walking in every day and seeing uh, President Bush's photo when I first walked in to one day walking in and the, the face that greeted me every morning when I walked into that office was that of President Obama. And there's just a, a, a pride you feel there. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, you know, it, it mightn't seem in the grand scheme of things, the same offices there, it's the same people there, you're doing the same work. It's just a picture on the wall. But how significant is it that the face looking back at you, I, I don't want to sound trite, but looks more like your own? For sure, of course. And think of that, right? Think of our statues in our United States, right? Think of if you grew up, uh, Kieran, and, and every doll that you had to choose for your daughter or son was not the same color as your skin right? Didn't look like you or your family. Um, there are all of these subconscious things that, and conscious things that happen every single day for people, right? Uh, women aren't on money in the United States of America. And I know um, I sound old because I still use money and don't just buy things on my phone, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like when I'm, I'm about to be 50 years old in March of 2021, I remember every dollar bill or $10, $5, $20, $100, if I even had them. Um, looking down, none of the people look like you. None of the statues look like you. None of the people in the museums look like you. And, you know, history is written by the winners, people like to say. And if you are oppressed, right, you are usually not the winner of that. And if there is some uprising where you do win, um, the people who write that story often don't want that story told. So there is something very powerful uh, with respect to um, seeing somebody who looks like you and who did it, um, you know, to the highest possible levels with intellect and compassion um, and decency. It was it was a very prideful moment for me. And I'm just doing some quick maths, as you say, you're going to be 51 next October. You were the same age I am now when he, when he was elected president. It did it. Did it influence your career path? Like, did, did, did decisions you made after that point, could you trace them back maybe to, to, to that turning point in history? For sure. I mean, when you look at the fact of his meteoric rise, right, from a, an organizer uh, to a senator to then jumping to the, you know, to become the president, uh, it is, um, he has skipped many grades, right, in the way that the way things used to be, right? You had to do this first for this long, and then that is the next logical step. And then you, and so what we've seen in America, even with a, a Pete Buttigieg, who, although he did not become the president of the United States, has, is a really powerful figure in our democracy right now um, as a former mayor, right, of, of, of a small town, um, but really bright thoughtful person, uh, hardworking, and he has skyrocketed into the national um, sort of forum. So I look at that and say, as a low-level cog in a wheel assistant United States attorney, I looked at, at President Obama and said, one day, if I choose, maybe I could lead you know, on the local level or maybe even bigger than that. And, and miraculously, in 2018, 10 years later, I decided to run 
um, for district attorney and became the first woman in the history of this office, which started in 1806, uh, to ever be elected district attorney and the first woman of color in the history of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, which, you know, we have the oldest uh, Supreme Court in the in the hemisphere, right, in our hemisphere. And so for me, um, we are breaking down walls and women generally are. Um, and then other people that have often been overlooked are now stepping up and saying, what about me? So that I can absolutely tie back to 2008 Obama. I, I, I just want to mention, before I let you go, you talk about your own campaign. He named you, I think, did he? Or he, he certainly referenced you oh in, in a speech. What a moment. Yes. Can you believe that? I literally, somebody told me that Obama just gave you a shout out and I felt like, <laughs> would you stop? And when I saw it, he literally said, let's do what they just did in Boston and Philadelphia and elect district attorneys that are thinking creative. And I just thought, you know what? If it ends today, I, I can die a happy woman. You know, Obama <laughs> knows who I am. So it was just, it's so humbling, right? And I've also been named by the outgoing president of the United States of America is as somebody who he's not happy with the work uh, that I'm doing. But, you know, listen, I we don't agree. Um, I respect the fact that he holds an office right now, um, not for much longer. But, um, you know, I, I feel as if two presidents have now mentioned my name. Um, I think we're doing something well here in Boston, Massachusetts and in Suffolk County. Uh, and we're going to continue doing the hard work. Now listen, we'll leave it there. Always a pleasure, uh, Rachel. Rachel Rollins, they're a district attorney in Massachusetts. Uh, Democratic Congressman Brendan Boyle is also on the line, I'm delighted uh, to say. Congressman, uh, as always, you're very welcome to the hard shoulder. You heard Rachel there, I know, talking about the significance of Barack Obama's victory uh, for her and for people of colour uh, and what it represented uh, to them. What did it represent from a wider point of view for the United States and for your party? Yeah, well, first, I have a very distinct memory of that night because it was my first election that I won to the state legislature. So I remember uh, very well the excitement of that. He, he stole your thunder. <laughs> no, happily, I was <laughs> I was happy to be the lead in. Um, so I gave my victory speech and then we put on the big screen where at the reception hall where we were and sat and watched uh, his speech and the election be called. My race was decided a couple hours earlier, so it just kind of, uh, I, I was glad to be the opening act. It worked out uh, very well and still obviously have that uh, newspaper headline saved. You know, for America, especially after the, the eight years of George W. Bush, um, electing Barack Obama was something very different. You know, someone who was obviously more popular internationally, who represented a, a step forward generationally. And it showed that um, you know what was always imagined to be impossible was now possible. Um, it's also the case, though, I think, that if you were to look at the last quarter millennium of American history, it's not a straight line. It's not linear. It tends to be two steps forward, one step back. And so the fact that there was a counter reaction to Barack Obama in some quarters, I think in many ways helped fuel Donald Trump and Trumpism. Um, and so in the end, we're making more progress than not. Um, but the story of, of the last 20 years, I think, has to be told. Obviously, the big moment and the euphoria many of us felt of electing Obama. But then everything that has happened since then is also part of the story. Mm. It, it was, was it ever possible for him to live up to, to all of the hype? I imagine it, it was it, that was always an impossible task. Right. I, I think that that is always a challenge when someone comes into office with incredibly high and sometimes unrealistic uh, expectations. There was also the challenge, you know, if people remember, 2008 campaign was relatively, George W. Bush was very unpopular at that point. Uh, John McCain, the Republican nominee, was having to kind of run with the, the heavy anchor of being the Republican nominee at a time when the party uh, was was not popular. So Barack Obama always had a small lead in that race. But then once September came and you had the the beginning of the Great Recession, what was a small Obama lead ended up becoming high single digits. And, and the race was never really in doubt after that point. But what it also meant was Obama coming into office had to inherit all of the uh, incredible economic damage that was really just dumped in his lap. Mm. And in many ways, that 
more than anything else, impacted at least his first four years as president. Uh, well, Neil O'Dowd, who's the founder of IrishCentral.com, uh, Irish Voice newspaper, and Irish American magazine, is also on the line. Uh, Neil, it might have seemed a little far-fetched that we could claim Barack Obama on this side of the pond, but we managed to do it nonetheless. Oh, we'd always find some way of claiming an American president. That's <laughs> <coughs> what we're very good at. No, I mean, I, I have such a distinct memory, like Brendan, of that night. I was up on 125th Street in Harlem, uh, in the leading African-American neighborhood in the city. And the joy and the unrestrained, incredible sense of exaltation of people who, like I remember one lady in a wheelchair who was the great-granddaughter of a slave. And to think that a black man had become president, I honestly never thought it would happen. I thought a woman would become president before a black man. And I, 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 he was just a remarkable political figure, and we know, in retrospect, even more remarkable than we'd ever think of in getting elected in, in a country that is now so deeply divided that, um, you know, Donald Trump made his reputation attacking and Barack Obama and not being an American citizen. And what, what, that was the what, what? Donald Trump's political journey and philosophy. What, what impact, so Neil, what impact Neil did um, did his election have on US-Irish relations? Well, you know, the, the fact that he, he I, I was on the trip to Ireland with him where he went to Moneygall and he went all over Ireland and there was an adultation that was almost Kennedy-esque about him. He was a very, he reminded a lot of Irish-Americans not of Kennedy himself, but the aura and, and the romance and the kind of Camelot and a beautiful wife, lovely kids. I mean, you know, you, you couldn't get a greater contrast between him and the guy who's now in the Oval Office in terms of gentility and ability to speak to people respectfully. He really did an extraordinary job as president in terms of all the weight of expectation that was on his head. I think he, he managed it remarkably well. And I think the Irish looked back and saw the black Jack Kennedy when they saw him, the, the man who did it for the Irish who were only three generations removed from the famine when John F. Kennedy took took power as the U.S. president. Mm. So there was a, so there was definitely a similarity and there was a sense of incredible accomplishment that nobody thought they'd live to see. Yeah, listen, it was an absolutely uh, remarkable moment I- indeed, Neil, and we appreciate uh, you joining us today on The Hard Shoulder to look back on it. Uh, Neil O'Dowd, founder of IrishCentral.com, the Irish Voice newspaper and Irish America magazine. Before Neil, we heard from Brendan Boyle, the Democratic congressman, and we also heard from Rachel Rollins, who is a district attorney in Suffolk County in Massachusetts. So we thank you all for your time here looking back uh, on that. Another moment in, in uh, News Talk series uh, looking uh, at the uh, two, the 20 most influential moments of the 20th century.